Well, church, it's a unique time, uh, isn't it, to be here. Uh, this is, I think, the sixth week that we've had this now uh, from afar, and, and so we've been walking through the fruit of the Spirit, and this morning we come to kindness. Uh, there are two things that's often been said that human beings cannot gaze at directly without going mad, the glory of God and the darkness of human evil. After years of studying human cruelty, Philip Haley, professor of philosophy at Wesleyan University and a veteran of World War II, must have felt close to madness. Working on a project on Nazi cruelty, he focused on the medical experiments Nazi doctors conducted on Jewish children in the death camps. Across all these studies, he, he later wrote, the pattern of the strong crushing the weak kept repeating itself and repeating itself. So that when I was not bitterly angry, I was bored at the repetitions of the patterns of persecution. My study of evil incarnate had become a prison whose bars were my bitterness toward the violent and whose walls were my horrified indifference to slow murder. Between the bars and the walls, I revolved like a madman. Over the years, I had dug myself into hell. During this time, Hallie came across a short article about a small town of 3,000 people in the mountains of southern France, which was the only safe haven for Jews in all of German-occupied Europe. The citizens of Le Chambeau were known for their heroic rescue of more than 5,000 Jewish children during the Second World War. It would later be written of this small town, the Holocaust was storm, lightning, thunder, rain, yes, and Lee Shambo was the rainbow. What emerges from the story is the strands of stubborn courage of these people. These French Protestants, fired up by their faith in Christ and the experience of years of persecution. They were pastored by Andre Trocomi and his wife Magda and their down-to-earth, no-nonsense quality of faith. They instructed their people to show kindness to all, especially those that were targets of, of extreme hatred, the Jews. The evening, uh, Pastor Trochemy was arrested, illustrates the entire story of their lives. The pastor and his wife had been invited over to another church member's house for dinner, and they were late, and so they sent their daughter over to their house to, to gather them, and when she entered, she found her pastor being arrested. Typically, however, Magna, the wife, invited the two policemen to have dinner with him. Friends were very skeptical and upset with her. They said, how, how could you bring yourself to sit down to eat with these men who were there to take your husband away? Perhaps even to his death. How, how could you be so forgiving, so decent to them, so kind? And she responded, what are you talking about? It was dinner time. They were standing there. We're all hungry. The food's ready. What do you mean by such foolish words as forgiving and decent and kind? But her response was typical. They deflected any praise. They were simply doing what needed to be done. She said, you must understand that it was the most natural thing to, in the world for, to, for them to help people. And for this couple... Loving kindness was an ordinary part of life, not the extraordinary. And I thought, would that be said of us? Has kindness sunk so deep within our bones 
that it's the next natural thing for us to do, to, to live this way? Would we respond the same way as his pastor and his wife? Kindness is best seen in action. It's, it's being willing to do something, to take an action that helps somebody else, even when it's inconvenient, and especially when it's costly for us. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a lively passage at the end of, book, of, of the book of Ephesians. And I say lively because there's so much to see and digest and apply, and we won't be able to, to tackle all of these, every aspect of these verses in, in depth but we're going we're gonna to look through it. And the reason why I chose this passage is simply because when, when our patience is taxed, and, and last week we looked at patience, we tend to resort to anger, which doesn't allow us to show the fruit of kindness very well. And so Paul aims here in, in Ephesians 4 at our hearts in these eight verses, tackling the roots of bitterness and sin that, that sit just underneath the surface and mines them out then so that we can see the necessity of kindness for the Christian life. And so we're going to walk through this passage. I don't have much of an outline as we walk through, and I'll make comments along the way as we look at these verses. But then at the end, in verse 32, we're going to camp out, and we'll see the definition of, of kindness and the opposite of kindness and the counterfeit fruit of kindness. So turn with me if you haven't already, and the, and the verses should be on the screen here this morning, but Ephesians chapter 4, and, and follow with me and, and listen as I read Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for all members one, of one another, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we come to verse 25, we see Paul writing to the church in Ephesus about the results of, of a radical change for the Christian. And I can't help but see the gracious patience of our Lord towards us as Christians as I read these verses. Because if I'm honest with myself, there's areas in this passage that I need to grow in in my life. And God is gracious with us and calls us again this morning to continue in our Christian growth by the power of the Holy Spirit who graciously works inside of us. And so he begins there in verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're all members one of another. One marker for the new life in a Christian is that they pursue to be a truth teller. Christians pursue truth because God loves truth and it builds and it unites people. But falsehood divides people. And we're to be members one, one of another. And so we tell the truth. We must tell the truth. It's because of who we are and who we're a part of. We're part of the body of Christ. And a Christian lives a truthful life simply because they are infused with the one who loves truth. 
We have the God of truth, and, and we live with the God of truth, and we have the spirit of truth living in us because we're all members of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we, we put away falsehood and speak truth with our neighbors, with our, with our members, with those that are fellow believers. And then he says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, th- now this is perhaps hard to understand and apply to our lives because it's, it's easy to sin when we're angry. Now, this verse doesn't prohibit anger, but there are qualifications for it in the Bible. We won't be able to cover all of them here. Perhaps it's better suited for another sermon. But let me give you some handles here so you know how to hold this command that Paul gives us. We can be angry with the sin of others, but we shouldn't be angry at others. And many people think that when you're a Christian, you must banish all anger from your life, but that isn't what Paul is saying here. Here's one definition that I found helpful from Pastor Tim Keller. He says, anger is the capacity to be roused to action by the sight of evil. So there are opportunities in our lives to be angry, and we should, but our anger should be against evil. And Jesus is seen in the Gospels many times, over and again, being angry. But it's never sinful. It's never selfish or self-righteous. So when we get angry, if there's any bit of selfishness or self-righteousness, then what we're really angry about is our own glory, our, our own pride, our own reputation, which, if we're honest, if I'm honest this morning, that's usually the main reason why I get angry. You've stepped into my kingdom, and, and I'm going to lash out. And when, but when we're angry at sin, either of ourselves or others, we, we tend to want to attack the person, though. And so when Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, he doesn't mean stuff your anger, just set it aside, put it in a box, don't deal with it. And he doesn't mean trash the person. What he's saying is attack the problem, not the person, attack the problem. Go after the issues that are present. See, we we tend to usually go after the person and, and attack them, thinking that There's more satisfaction found there. But we've got it all wrong. We need to attack the problem, deal with the problem. And why? Why do we need to do this? Well, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. See, when we attack others, we give room for for Satan to work. We open up regions in our lives lives for, for Satan to come in and destroy things. We do this. We, we open it up. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, friends, nothing will disrupt the plans of Satan more than our willing submission to God in denial of Satan. Pushing him out of our lives. To resist means to be opposed, to be against. It means we don't give him opportunities and the essence of sin is trusting Satan while we distrust God. So resisting him has a cause and effect. The more we submit our lives to God, the easier it is for Satan to be ignored and pushed out, and the quicker he will flee from us. And then, and then Paul, from this verse, verse 27, then to verse 8, 28, announces then what this new life looks like. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul, writing to 
Christians here, and he's instructing them what, what new life should be like. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I mean, he's still writing to Christians here, though, in, in verse 28 in Ephesians 4, the possibility that there's some Christians still stealing. And Paul, if, if you remember, in Corinthians, deals with it again. He, he's bringing to mind, again, of what we once were. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Do not know that the people who are into sexual deviation, people who are abusive, people who are thieves, people who are blackmailers and extortioners, people who are greedy, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He says, He's bringing to mind again, this is what you once were, so now live as you are. And if you're new in Christ, stop stealing. Put that away. Do your own work. Earn a living and then give. Share with others. So this applies to, to everyone. He's writing this to us. And then Paul switches now. And this is where it gets in the nitty-gritty. This is where it's going to hurt, Okay. Because he says in verse 29, he switches to the mouth. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Friends, do you want your family to grow? You want your relationships to be mature and helpful and encouraging? We, we need to seriously consider what Paul tells us here because what he discusses in this verse can be life-changing. He's just reminded them in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians of how amazing that God had brought them into the family. And, and, but now he, he's instructing them out of his love to how to live, how, how to grow as a Christian. And, and frankly, most of our growth as Christians comes through conversations and what we say. And we'll get to kindness here in a few moments but we can only understand kindness if we understand our speech, if we understand our conversations. And so he says there in verse 29, this is a verse where, where friends, you, you probably need to memorize this verse. Let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So I want to just briefly, phrase by phrase, walk through this verse. First, he says, everything we say needs to be good for building up. Everything we say, every joke we tell, the news we share, the review of our day to our spouse or our kids, our comments on dinner or how someone's dressed or the kid's homework or how the, the house looks when we get home. Every word I say needs to strive to build people up who live around me. You know, this last week we had Jason Rasmus come over and build a shiny new fence. But you know what my job was before he came? My job was to tear down the old fence, which is an easy yet ugly, nasty job. It's ripping boards off, tearing nails out. It, it looks ugly when it happens. But it was beautiful to see Jason come and build that new fence. He had to be a lot more careful than I was. He had to be precise. And he had to think through what he was doing. But the end result, the, the build that he did was beautiful. Well, friends, the same is 
true for our conversations. See, it seems easier to tear down, but it's a nasty job. It's ugly. But building up, that's where things are beautiful. A second, Paul says, we should speak as fits the occasion, which means what others need. It doesn't mean that I say what people want to hear, but that my words are guided by what others need to hear. Before we open our mouths, we need to reflect, even for a moment, is this what they need? If, if we want to see them become more like Jesus Christ, will, will my words right now help them? Does my wife really need my critique of dinner? Do my kids really need my opinion of how they're dressed for the day? Do you really need to email the church to point out all the ways that we're not doing things the right way? See, as Christians, we should speak as fits the occasion. Is it needed? Is it helping others to become more like Jesus? And last, he says our words should give grace to those who hear. Friends, our words must always convey grace to the people around for the sake of leaving them better off than before you said anything. And listen, friends, this is how God talks with you. Now that convicts me. That cuts me to the heart. Because God always speaks with grace to his children, always. And God believes that conversations are one of the, the key ways that people experience grace in their lives. And our conversations are one of the key ways that people experience unwholesomeness, the absence of grace. See, friends, your words will either help people understand how grace looks and feels, how God himself would speak to them if he were here, or your words will help people understand the hopelessness and the meanness of hell. That's the power within our words. And before you get overwhelmed with that, you need to realize that what Paul is working on here is the assumption that for you to be able to speak grace to others, you have already heard grace yourself. This is the only way you'll be able to speak grace to others is if you've heard the grace of God. And as you live in a gracious relationship with God, you gain a sense of what grace sounds like and what grace feels like and, and, you, and what it looks like. And so you hear it and you see it and then you know what you should say to others. And this means you need to, more, need to know more just than ideas about life and Christianity. You need even more than passion for God. You need to know him. Not just about him. And friends, the only way to know God is to study his word. See, knowledge and truth are essential for Christians, which is why Paul spends the majority of the first two chapters in, of this letter focused on theology, who this gracious God is, what he's done, and how that impacts us. But friends, we need more. We need then intimacy with God. We, we need the, the present experience of, of a God who actively loves us, 
And that's why he pauses in chapter 3 and he prays for his people to have a, a real, fresh, constant relationship with God. Listen, and you can see it on the screen. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And friends, he's, he's praying for Christians here. He's praying for those that are already a part of the family of God. And his prayer is that we would experience friendship with God in this constant and fresh way. He prays that we would be strengthened in God, that God would make his home in our hearts always through faith. That we would know that God lives in us, that he's actively loving us. And he prays that we would know constantly how great God's love is for us. And he doesn't say that we need to love God more. No, he prays that we would be able to grasp his love for us. A love that goes far deeper than our ability to fully comprehend. See, friends, God longs for you to know each and every day that he loves you with an everlasting and unbreakable and unshakable love. And you need to know this love if you're ever going to be able to love others well, especially loving them in our conversations. So we need to run to the gospel. We need to dwell there. And this is what Paul is reminding them of so that they won't be guilty of the next point there in, in, in verse 30. Coming back to chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. See, if we tear down others by our speech and by our attitudes, we're grieving the Spirit who indwells us and by whom we're sealed for the day of redemption. See, friends, the church is, is held together by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can't be a true Christian and want nothing to do with the church. And so if, if you're saved and, and I'm saved and the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit will not tell us to speak harshly and, and mean to one another, to, just to speak rotten words to one another, you know, the Holy Spirit will be grieved when we speak this way. You grieve over somebody only if you love them. You, you grieve over something that is very dear to you. And when you sin, in fact, when you rebel against God, God is grieved, friends. And that's what Paul is telling us here. But, but now the crux of the passage here this morning, verses 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, you can't be kind to one another if bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander is in your midst. It, it isn't possible. So Paul tells us to put it away. Put those things off in verse 31 and then put on kindness. Now, what is Kindness. The essence of kindness is being thoughtful for others. 
and, and, and thinking of, of others as more important than ourselves. To be kind means to want to help others, to encourage or comfort them, to, to do something that serves or benefits them. And in order to be kind to others, I need to put myself in their shoes and think what, what I would most want or need them to do for me and then didn't do it for them. Kindness is seen in action, being, being willing to do something to take action that helps somebody, even when it's inconvenient for myself. See, kindness goes beyond duty. It's, it's doing something that you don't have to do simply because of love. It's sacrificial living and thinking and action. And you don't expect anything in return. In fact, you prefer not to be noticed or recognized. See, kindness is very practical. It's practical generosity. It means to value something, to prize something or someone more than ourselves, which, which does make us vulnerable. And so the only way of doing this is having a deep inner security in God. And we can read about the kindness of God in the Old Testament and the Hebrew word that is translated closest to the idea of kindness is the word hesed. It can be translated a number of ways, meaning love with an emphasis on faithfulness. It's sometimes translated to be a faithful love. It can also be translated to mean loyalty. And other times it's talking about mercy towards people. But one of the older ways to translate the word hesed is to, to say is to call it loving kindness. When God acts in loving kindness, it means he's being faithful to his covenant promises. And there are many examples of this throughout the Old Testament. But one that, that stuck out to me this week in my study was in the book of Ruth. I preached through this book a few years ago, and you can go to the church app or the website and listen to those messages. But in that study, I make the claim that the main character, the main focus of, of the story of Ruth is not Ruth, it's Naomi. It's the mother-in-law. And in this beautifully short story, you see the rawness of, of suffering, loss, and pain, and the incredible faithfulness of Ruth towards Naomi, and her refusal to, to leave her, showing self-sacrifice and loving kindness. And later, you then see Boaz and his selflessness towards, towards Ruth and Naomi. And then, most importantly, throughout the book, you see the loving kindness of God towards Naomi and this family and the lineage there's many ups and downs in the story, but, but really it ends with Ruth's willingness to think of someone else more than, her, more than herself. She's kind. She submits herself to the plan of God to marry a man that was old enough to be her dad so that her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her line could continue. And throughout the entire story of Ruth, you see the loving kindness of people who've been infused with selflessness and love for people that are, that are outside of themselves. And you see risks in this story, from Naomi to Ruth especially, and then even Boaz, in order for them then to show loving kindness to someone who's in, who's in need. And so in this story especially, kindness is not simply an action, it's really a characteristic of people. People are regularly described as a kind person. You, you probably say this about people that you know. In this story, Ruth was a kind person. So kind people live habitually to bless and benefit others because it's been built into their character to do so. They've, they've learned this. And Paul says then in, in Galatians 5, of the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. And what does that mean? 
if you really have the fruit of the Spirit growing your life, you will find yourself becoming more and more kind, more and more willing to sacrifice. You're, you're willing to give. You're willing to, to burden yourself for people around you who don't have the same kind of living standards that you do. And the Bible says that kindness grows along with peace and joy and everything else. And we saw that in my introduction with Pastor Andre and his wife. For them, kindness was who they were. It was, it was an instinct in them after years of walking with the Lord. So that's kindness, but what's the opposite of kindness? Well, I believe it's envy, which leaves me unable to rejoice in another's joy. And the counterfeit, the, the fake alternative, is manipulative good deeds, which means that the fake uh, uh, fruit of, of kindness is, is to serve others, not for their sake, but so that we could be recognized. And we serve to feel good to be included. We, we serve others to, to have our name mentioned later. See, if you, if you really have the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life, you will find you become more and more kind. You'll be willing to sacrifice. You're willing to give. You're, you're willing to burden yourself for people around you. And this is really frightening to me. Because the Bible continually says the way you can tell whether you're a real Christian is that you're concerned and compassionate and generous to people who have physical and economic need. So friend, are you a kind person? You might not see the fruit of kindness very clearly, but if you're a Christian, it's there, even in a small embryonic state. I came across an interesting quote this week by Julian, one of the early Roman emperors who absolutely hated Christians, and he tried to, to stamp them out, to end them. And he was the emperor of Rome in the second century, and one of the problems he discovered, and he wrote to a friend, a pagan priest, about it, and he explained why he couldn't stamp out Christianity, and why it just kept on growing and growing and growing. And here's what he said. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Now, we know from the Bible that the church didn't simply grow because they were nice and they cared for poor people. That's not what ministry is primarily about. But what it does say is that our church cannot have kindness removed from it and still grow. Now, the Word of God, along with the Spirit of God, moving in the lives of the people of God to serve for the glory of God. Kindness has to be rooted in us. And how can we be kind to one another? How can we be tender-hearted, forgiving one another? Back at this verse, what's the, the fuel for the action in the life of the Christian? Because he says there at the end of verse 32, because remember, God in Christ Jesus forgave you. We can show kindness because of Jesus Christ. And so if we wrap up these eight verses and we put away lying, we speak truth, dealing with our sin, um, with anger towards people and no more stealing, but laboring to serve, speaking grace to others and removing all bitterness and anger and wrath and showing kindness to one another, it can only be done, all of that only can be done because God in Christ forgave us. And it's embarrassing to admit that we've received so much mercy and kindness from God for decades. 
And yet we so easily refuse to extend that same kindness to others, to fellow strugglers. Friends, you will never have to forgive as often or as much as God has forgiven you. Never. And as Christians, we have received unbelievable grace and mercy from a perfect, loving God, a holy God, a righteous God who has every right to smite us. Therefore, Paul says in the beginning of chapter 5, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We, we put this into practice, not simply out of our own ingenuity and hard work, but simply because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so here are some questions I want you to ponder this afternoon. When you're done watching this message, I want you to stop and consider. And actually, I want you to do this with those that are with you, if possible. Actually list the number of ways you've experienced the kindness of, of the Lord in your life. Talk through it. Write it out. And if you are watching with someone else, discuss it. Talk about it. Hear from them how God has shown kindness to you. And then praise God together for his kindness in your life. And then pause and consider your life. Are you now characterized by kindness? Is your home full of loving kindness right now? I want to speak specifically to kids right now. I know that you're listening because your parents are making you sit there, like my kids are sitting right now to listen to Dad. And, and I want you to hear me, kids. I want you to be able to look up at the screen and, and see me here. Are you showing kindness right now to your brother or sister you live with? You're stuck at home. I, I get it. Are you able to, to show kindness even when they don't deserve it? Are you showing loving kindness to your mom and dad right now? Are you gracious and patient with mom and dad? You know, your, your mom and dad are striving to do the same, right? Mom and dad? Are you, are you showing patience and grace to your kids, showing loving kindness to them? See, friends, Jesus shows you kindness every day with his patience for you. And Jesus died for your unkindness. He died to remove that barrier between you and him. And you can always run to Jesus. He is strong and kind and he is there to help us. Listen, mom and dads. God believes that our conversations with our kids is one of the key ways that they will experience his grace in their life. And so our, our conversations with them is, is, is a way that they can see that displayed, the grace of God. But in our conversations is a way that possibly they can see unwholesomeness, the lack of grace. What are your conversations like? See, parents, your words will either help your kids understand how grace looks and feels how, how God himself speaks to them if he were here, or your words will help them understand the hopelessness and the meanness of hell. Friends, choose loving and, and kind words this week with your kids. 
you can run to Jesus too, who's strong and kind, and he will help you. Husbands and wives, how are you doing this week in showing loving kindness to one another? Have you been more patient with one another this week? You know, if kindness is essentially loving someone enough to put their needs before your own, then how are you practicing that in your marriage? You know, I was cut to the heart this week while studying, and one author pointed out that for most of Jesus' ministry on earth, most of the time that he was teaching and serving, it was brought about by someone interrupting him. And he was doing something else. He was either on a journey, or he's visiting something, or he's eating, or even he's teaching. And, and Jesus seems always to be interrupted. And yet we, what we find in the Gospels is that when Jesus is interrupted, he doesn't respond with irritation. He doesn't respond with dismissal. But he responds with loving kindness. And friends, if I can be honest with you this morning, I really struggle with this at home. And God, through my wife and through my kids, is really trying to teach me something. Teaching me, possibly through the interruptions of others, that I can show loving kindness with his help. That I can pause what I'm doing and focus on them to show love and grace. And perhaps he's working on you also. Friends, we can run to Jesus. He is strong and kind. He's, he's there to help. I know that many of you are sheltered in place and we, we have our plans disrupted, but do we respond the same way with kindness as Jesus does? Well, last point here of application is our church. How's our church doing? Is Edgewood Bible Church characterized by kindness. Would people who, who live around Edgewood Bible Church and observe EBC and come in contact with EBC, would they say, we are kind? And how do we show kindness? What, what areas do we need to grow in, in kindness to others? Jonathan Edwards, writing to his congregation years ago, challenged them to consider their kindness to others, especially to those outside of the church. And he, in essence, says there's always a cost to kindness. He said, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. And he says, one, one objection is that he hears and that we see, he says, my money is my own. See, I earned it. And the answer, he says, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where should we have been? Another objection, the poor, many of the people who, who I could help, they're undeserving. And the answer, Christ might have said, these are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I, I'll give to the good angels, the deserving poor, you see. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. And another objection, if I give to someone else, they may abuse it. And the answer, Christ might have said the same thing, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning all the more, and yet he gave his own blood. My dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the needy, even to the thankless. It's not your money 
I want, my friends, it's your happiness. And then he ended. He said, I fear that there are many who may know well that they're not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Well, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you'll be beggars throughout eternity. Friends, I pray that will be the mindset of Edgewood Bible Church. May we be faithfully kind people, not only to our own household, but to others in need outside of it. May we give to others. May we show loving kindness to all that we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be known as people who are strong in kindness simply because we're trusting the one who is strong and kind. Help us to to know, to grow in kindness in our own homes, the testing ground for kindness. And give us grace when when we face opposition. Give us endurance to love others when it's hard. Give us grace when when we stumble, when we fall. Give us hope and faith to trust in you. And God, you are more than an example. You are our hope. You are our everything. And because of Jesus' death on the cross to deal with our sins, we can love. We can have joy and peace and patience. And we can show kindness even to the least of these. Thank you, Father, for these opportunities for this week. May we glorify you in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.